ending a series, uh, or the tail end of a series called Go and Stay. And basically, this has been a, a series all about decision making, and more than even decision making, as we've, we've talked at length about, it's about discernment. Uh, and discernment is a kind of deep decision making. It's a kind of uh, making a choice in which you're handing something over to God, and actually, it's like the real core of it, just saying, like, God, you make this choice, right? But practically in our lives, with like real disciplines and stuff, that is very, very difficult to do. Um, I just had, uh, I, have a, I meet with a spiritual director once a month, uh, and, and he, uh, we were talking about anxiety and worry and stuff. Um, I'm kind of a worry wart, and so I was just kind of like telling him, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm struggling with all this anxiety and worry and stuff like that. And he's like, well, did you, did you give that to God? And in that moment, I just want to go like, <laughs> Um, just because that's, that's a very Christianese thing to say, and I'm like, that's really easy for you to say, dude, but like, I don't, practically, what does that mean? Uh, and he said, well, uh, did you give it to God? And I was like, yeah, fine, I gave it to God. I gave it to God, and now I'm still doing it. He's like, well, did you take it back? <laughs> and I was like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, worry. And I went, oh, <laughs> worry is the, uh, is the presence of your own will trying to get in the way of God. Uh, worry is being held captive in the moment that comes after this one. A and I think worry is a direct result of bad decision making. <laughs> and bad decision making can be solved, but it takes a lot of practical work. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what that means, and we've been unpacking that. Uh, and a cool little stat that I've been using throughout this whole series is that you make over 35,000 decisions, subconscious or conscious, a day. A day. And then I juxtapose that with how many times we breathe. So quick Google search. According to Google, according to whatever someone put up there, uh, you breathe 23,000 times a day. So you're making more decisions than you are breaths in a single day. So it would seem that God should care an awful lot about decisions, about uh, discernment and about decision making. And so we've been unpacking what that means. We unpacked what it means to go, because I think at the fundamental level, every decision is between go or stay. Do I leave this situation or do I stay in this situation? Do I leave this relationship or do I stay in this relationship? Do I leave this job or do I go? So we've been talking about that. We, we defined what go and stay were. And then we got into sort of the nitty gritty of it, which means we, last week, or not last week because we didn't meet, but the week before that, we talked about community. And we talked about basically your relationships and, and who you're with, your tribe, your, your people, your church, your community, your country, what, name it. Uh, we talked about what it means to go or stay and when to discern when God is saying, no, you need to go from that place. And then, hey, you really need to stay in that place. And so to take it on a final practical level, uh, and this is going to be painful for a lot of us, we're going to talk about your day job this morning. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack what it means to go or stay in your job. Uh, and more than that, we're going to juxtapose what it means to just have a job and what it means to have a vocation, a true voice. And what we're going to figure out along the way is that a lot of times we confuse our careers with our vocations. And even on a deeper level, we confuse our careers with our identities. It somehow sneaks in and, and we think that we are what we do. But, but that's not who you are. God did not make you to be a construction worker, a dentist, whatever it is. God made you to be you, and you bringing yourself into that role is ultimately what's going to help mend the whole world. Um, so let me pray for us as we get started, and, and we'll jump right in. God, I, I thank you so much um, just for this morning, for, uh, for the ability to discern. Uh, thank you for giving us that great gift, and thank you for being with us in that great gift. 
uh, that we worship a God who is not only just calling us to discern and calling us to do that, but a God that actually makes choices in that and reveals those choices to us. Um, we love you, and I'm so excited to see what happens this morning. Amen. Uh, so part of our little roadmap and what we've been using, we've been using this verse every week. Uh, and just to give you a little quick recap, we've broken it down into kind of this basic sort of template for discernment. Um, what it is is it's ask, ask. Uh, what's the last one? <laughs> ask, ask. Oh, find out what's good. So ask, ask. Find out what's good, and then walk in it. Those are the two things. Ask, ask again. Find out what's good, and walk in it. And basically, that comes from this. It says, "This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path." So our first thing is we're going to stand there. We're going to take it in, right? We're going to take a good long moment to see exactly where these paths are headed. And then we're going to ask what the ancient paths were. And this is something called just like uh, conventional wisdom. And I've been saying this the whole series, but this is call your mom wisdom, right? This is like, hey, who's the person that I get advice from? Who are the mentors in my life? That's their wisdom, and you collect that. But then you have to ask on a deeper level, is this good for me? Is this good? We're going to talk a lot about what's good this morning. But is this good? Does this serve my grander story? Is this really moving me along? Is it pushing me? And when that takes a deeper understanding. A lot of times, people can speak into your life and they can tell you what's good, but there are certain moments in your life where no one has lived the exact story that you have lived or are living, and they can't. You'll find it unhelpful. You'll go like, none of this advice is working. I feel the same. It's a dark night of the soul. Paint, painting, dark night. Uh, dark night of the soul, I still feel tumultuous. I don't know what's going on. And that's when you have to go to God and say, hey, you have it, <laughs> right? Like, please take this from me. That's a deeper wisdom and understanding to ask what's truly good. And then most importantly, we have to take action and we have to walk in it. We have to walk in it. at a very practical level. What you do for your day job, for your career, you have to take action, right? Or you're going to be stuck. And that's not stay. That's stuck. That's a bad one. <laughs> you're going to feel worried all the time you're gonna feel like oh i'm not moving along in my life that's what stuck feels like and oh so many of us feel stuck in our jobs oh so many of us feel stuck right where we are uh, you're gonna spend up to a third of your life working in your job and i think that's a very generous like generous figure this comes from forbes they also did this based on people who are going to retire at 68 which wow good for you uh, but basically what that means is like you're gonna spend a ton of your life practically speaking, in an office, at your workspace, whatever it is, working, doing your work. And so what you do truly matters. Give you another example. Americans are crazy at this. Millennials, before they turn 35, the average millennial is going to have five jobs. And more than that, they average about three careers before that. So different avenues, different paths. And that's only going to get crazier as time goes on because our world is changing in such a radical pace, right? It's only going to get more insane. So basically, we lean into our jobs and they define us as Americans. When you are at a party and you ask someone, hey, what do you do? They respond not with I do this, but with an I am statement, right? Like, what do you do? Oh, well, I am a pastor. And when I say that at a party, people just want to back up and leave. <laughs> but I am this role. I'm not, I don't do this role. I am this role. This is who I am. Right? And that is such a crazy negative way to live your life. You are not just that. Because what happens is when that gets stripped away or something goes wrong, it, then where's your identity? Where are you rooted? Where are you planted? Your role, what you do, 
is not who you are. Did you know that, like, the, the, they studied this and they said the most common response to, hey, how are you doing today? What do you think that is? Yell it out if you know. What? Yeah, that, that's the right one. Uh, most of the time in the, in the 90s, up to the mid-early aughts, it was fine or good. Um, now, since about 2006, they've been tracking it, and the most common response is indeed busy. Extra point to Drew. It's busy, right? We somehow equate that with a really good thing. It's replaced fine. Fine and good have now become busy. And busy just means I've got a lot going on at work, right? I'm really killing it right now. There's so much to do. That somehow becomes just a really cool measure of what you're doing in life. Yeah, I'm just busy with a smile on your face. You should not be smiling about being that busy. That's not a good thing, <laughs> right? But we define ourselves by this stuff. We even, you know, like your last name, your surname, uh, in, was probably uh, invented around the Middle Ages, right? And the reason that was is because we used to live in these small little townships and people only knew their first names because there weren't two like Johns in the village. You wouldn't name your son John because there's a John over there, what are you doing, right? So you would have all these different names, Anthony, John, Mark, every, everything, right? But then what happened is those villages started to grow out and combine and all of a sudden the village from the east combines with the village from the west and you've got like four Joshua's there, right? And so you have to go, oh, well, that's the Joshua. He's the son of Mark. So we've got Joshua Marks, right? Or uh, to take it even a step further, and this is what it began to be, your vocation or your job would define your last name, right? My last name is Cobia. I think I come from some weird long line of fishermen, right? There, there, but your last name likely has something to do with what your ancestor at one point did as a job, and somehow that defined your family line forever, <laughs> right? The most common name in the U.S. is Smith. There are over 23,000 Smiths in the U.S. That's crazy town, but basically the, the word Smith comes from a, a, a like blacksmith or someone who would strike. So the verb in the Latin verb comes from strike, which also comes from smite, which means that most of the people in the U.S. right now are carrying a name that literally means smite, and that kind of really coincides with our version of God too. Anyway, we've got two names, Smith, smite, and somehow that carries on for generations and generations. What that job was defined who they were. And I think that's a really mixed up way to live your life, a really mixed up way to go through identity. Your job is not who you are, right? But, and this is what I really want to dig into this morning, who you are is your job. Who you are is your job. Because you could find yourself in any number of careers and jobs, but you bring yourself in there. Wherever you go, there you are, right? The old saying goes. You're gonna bring your same strengths and weaknesses to whatever job you have. So when choosing a job or choosing when to stay in a job or when to go in a job, you have to realize that you're always gonna be there. And so your main job, the main work of life is you. It's working on in here, what can I take from this situation that I can pull into my identity and make myself a better person so that I can bring something better into the world? What is it about this job that can shape me into a better human being? Not the other way around. But what, what in this work can I take out and actually learn something different from? Uh, there's this awesome Hasidic tale. Uh, it's it's th this old tale that rabbis tell. Uh, but basically there's an old, old rabbi named Rabbi Yusa and he was talking to a group of students and he, uh, he outlines just this, this perfect sort of uh, little 
snippet on vocation when he says, when I die and I go to heaven, God won't ask me, Yusa, why weren't you more like Moses? He's going to ask me, Yusa, why weren't you more like Musa? Right? We, it's so easy for us to look at those people who are just a little bit ahead of us in a job, a little bit ahead of us in our career, and go like, oh, I need to be more like that person. But that's not the question that God's asking of you. It's not like, hey, why aren't you more like your boss? It's no, hey, why aren't you leaning into more of who I made you to be, of who you already are? Why does it take us so long to figure out who we've been all along? It's a lifetime search. Living authentically honors the image of God, that light in the world in you. Uh, this is what uh, God has to say about you being the light of the world. Um, and what's interesting, in a different gospel, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. Um, and in this gospel, he throws it right back, and he says, hey, you too, you are the light of the world. And he's not just talking about, hey, Christianity is the light of the world. He's talking directly to you. He's saying, no, you carry the divine image of God, and you are the light of the world. Listen to what he says. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon. Is that what it says? You are the light of the world. Uh, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give it light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is not, and too often we take this passage and we just sort of blanket statement like the church is the light of the world or Christianity is the light of the world. But what Jesus is talking to in this context, this is his Sermon on the Mount. This is like his magnum opus. This is the most read letters we see in the Bible. This is his longest sermon. And what he's talking about right before this is stuff like, hey, do not be anxious. Do not worry. The birds of the field don't have to worry. We clothe them, right? It's, it's this blessed are the meek. It's, it's talking to you, to people, to this crowd. And in this crowd, he's saying something really drastic here. He's saying, hey, you are the light of the world. You, you're the saltiness. You're the stuff that makes it good. You're only the light of the world when you're being your authentic, true self. Be more of you. You are the light of the world. There's a, there's a I'm going to go back to the Hasidic stuff. There's this awesome um, phrase uh, in Hebrew. It's called tikkun olam. And basically what that means is uh, it, it's called repair the world. It's a rabbinic principle that, that means uh, at the start of the world, um, in Judaism and their Genesis, basically the world was life, right? Let there be light. And then somehow that light gets broken, right? This would be our Garden of Eden story, uh, the fall. That light gets broken. And so what the rabbis would say in like a symbolic way to make it really beautiful is they would say that light just got shattered and scattered. And it, it took form in everything we see. So every object, every person, every relationship, every job, everything has the chance to sparkle and be that light, or it can cause a mess. To give you a really practical example of this and, and what this means is, so if they would say if you're using something to its full potential, like your own light, if you're using your life to your full potential, you're going to help repair the world, restore the world. But if you're not using your light, you're going to make a mess of it. You're going to destroy it. And the examples they would use is if you're carrying a mop and you use that mop, right, with its wooden handle to smack somebody, right, you're not using it properly. <laughs> you're using it for darkness. You're using it to make a mess when the mop was designed to solve a mess. But rather, if you actually use that mop and you clean something up, you are restoring and solving something. 
There are two ways we can use this little light of ours, and that is we can make a mess or we can help solve a mess. You are deeply involved, and your job is the same way. Your job carries that same light. So you can use that job and begrudgingly go there every day and just be like, oh, I hate this so much. Or you can use that situation to bring more light in the world. And that doesn't have to be something super magnifying and crazy. Like, okay, I'm going to go be a missionary uh, in China, and I'm going to leave everything behind because this is how I need to use my life. That's not actually the greater call. I always laugh. We have a great awe and reverence for monks. Do you know what it takes to be a monk? Silence and peace. Chill. I don't think there's a lot of stress going on in a monk's life. I also don't think that it's the most noble profession. I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think we need them so desperately. But the call to be a monk is actually a very, like, if, if you really look at it and dissect it, it's like, okay, well, you're just going to go, and you're going to hang out, and your meals are going to be provided, and you're going to be chilling, and you'll do daily work. And that sounds really nice, right? Like, that sounds wonderful. Our lives, in a practical sense, are going to be way more stressful. But you actually have the chance to be even more devout. You have the chance to actually take yourself into the situation that you're going in and, and, and unlock that light and trust God in that situation and actually be there and be present and be wonderful. Lost story. Sorry, lost my place here. So, yes, so your job can be either of those two things. I'm going to tell you a quick story about the worst job that I ever had in a way that I was not using it and I was making a mess, right? Because sometimes you can find yourself in a role and you can go, ooh, ooh, I'm not supposed to be here, and you end up causing great dismay. So when I uh, graduated high school, I needed a summer job. Uh, my parents were like, you have to get a job, uh, find a job. And I, didn't wa- I was working at Jamba Juice before this, and I was like, I'm not going to do another summer making smoothies. I just cannot do this. So I was like, okay, I'm going to find, I'll go on Craigslist at the time, very sketchy. Uh, I went on Craigslist, and I looked up, like, what, what can I find as my summer job? And I found the perfect option, because really for me what I was looking for was the job that I could do the least amount of work in and the job that I would have the least amount of hours. That was my goal, um, strong stuff. So anyway, I look and I find this, this company and they're called the San Francisco Homeless Services Coalition. And I'm like, oh, that's right up my alley, like justice, like what are we gonna do? And I looked it up and they said, basically this is a program that raises money for the homeless crisis in San Francisco, checking all the boxes. Like I'm so excited, I can't wait to get involved in this. So I drive uh, my Mercury Villager, which is my mom's minivan, into the city, park on Market Street, go up to this very small office, uh, and they open the door, and it's just a bunch of like fold-out chairs, and they're all in a circle, and there's about like 10 to 15 people there, all of them around my age, and uh, we all sit down, and this, uh, this kooky sort of a couple comes out with a clipboard, uh, and it turns out there's more than one clipboard. They start handing us all clipboards, and we all get a clipboard, uh, and on the clipboard is uh, what says at the top, script. And the script was designed, and they explained this to us, you're going to take this script, you need to memorize this, and your job, and they did not make this clear in the Craigslist ad, your job is going to be going door to door in the city of San Francisco asking people for money, and your goal is $400 a day. If you meet your goal, you will be paid. <laughs> if you do not meet your goal, you will not be paid. And there was like a grace, like two week training period where they were like, okay, like, I mean, we'll give you some money uh, just so you'll stick with us. But after those two weeks, like you're on your own. Um, So knowing that I was going to have to go very embarrassed back to my parents and say that I made the wrong choice, I just decided I'm going to stick this thing out. Even though parking in the city is like $40 a day, it made no financial sense whatsoever. Uh, But I stuck it out and I started walking door to door and they dropped me um, in pack heights. 
I don't know why they decided I would be the right fit for that. If you know anything about the city of San Francisco, Cat Heights is like the Beverly Hills of San Francisco. It's the most gorgeous, like crazy expensive, wonderful place. Um, but it's where all the wealthy people live. And now San Francisco is just all wealthy people. But at that time, it was just where all the wealthy people live. So they were like, okay, here's your plan. You wanna take it one street at a time uh, and you wanna go zigzag. The reason you wanna go zigzag is because if you're at the neighbor's house and they hear you, the neighbor could warn them that you're coming and they won't open the door for you. So you gotta cross the street and then go zigzag across it. So I got to my first house and I knock on the door uh, and this very kind man opens the door uh, and he's really gracious towards me, but he says, like, no, I, I'm, I can't give you any money. I know nothing about you. They didn't send us out with any credentials, nothing. So they're like, I know nothing about you. I can't just hand you money. Uh, and all they give me was this white envelope. And I was just like, there's cash in here? Um, <laughs> remarkably crazy. Uh, so th th this guy was like, no, I'm sorry. You're doing good work, but I, I can't support this. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Shuts the door. That would be the most cordial response that I would receive in my short term in this job. The next home that I went to, uh, this lady in what appeared to be a fur coat answers the door and yelled at me so badly that after she shut the door, and this is true, I cried. <laughs> uh, the, the, along in the afternoon, uh, and I did this for several days, but uh, for the story's sake, let's say it's this afternoon. That afternoon, I went to a home uh, in which uh, a lady opens the door and then I hear a baby cry and she looks at me like I just murdered someone and says, you just woke up my baby. What are you even doing here? And then I was trained that even if they're angry, you just stick to the script. So I was like, I'm Josh Kobe. I'm from the San Francisco Homeless Services Coalition. We're going door to door in your neighborhood to ask. And she's like, you need to stop. She does, she's not shutting the door. She's just yelling at me, stopping. And I'm like re repeating the script and just back and forth. Finally, and I'm not kidding, she takes a broom, much like the mob story that the rabbi said, and she starts chasing me out the door and I go, I don't want to get hit by a broom. I'm done with this job. And I quit right after that. But you see, I was in the wrong place, right? Not only was that job ludicrously wrong and they were probably just pocketing that cash. It's a whole long story. I keep thinking, I think about it once a week. Um, but I was in the wrong place in the wrong role. I was not designed to do that. That's not what God wanted me to do. That's not my voice. That's not my vocation, right? That was a job I was not designed to be put in. To juxtapose that story, uh, I, I, for three years, uh, led a chapel at Pacifica High School. And uh, the first year that I showed up there, um, there's a, they have a terrific like vice principal, but he's, he's very, um, much like myself, he's a big ideas guy, and so he loves ideas, but oftentimes like the nitty gritty details and stuff, they kind of fall out the way. So we, we dreamed up this position together and it just sounded awesome. Like I'm gonna, we're gonna lead worship, we're gonna create this big worship team. Uh, the first week I showed up, there was like a trumpet player, two saxophone players, a piano and a drummer. Uh, and I was supposed to lead a worship team. So we were singing like Hillsong songs with like a brass section and stuff, but, and like not well, not well at all. Um, but after that, uh, the vice principal comes up and he's like, okay, cool, let me show you to your classroom. And I replied, classroom? And he's like, oh yeah, no, no, you're teaching the chapel class. And I went, no, 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 I signed on to lead the chapel, not the chapel class. And he's like, oh, well, that's, that's the job description. We're gonna have to find someone else if you can't do that. And I was like, okay, well, sure, like, let's go. No plan, no curriculum, no nothing. Step into a room, it's the only music program in the school. So there are 40 kids packed in to this small classroom all awaiting Mr. Cobia to say something about chapel worship and begin the music class. 
And the vice principal just kind of like shoves me in there. He's like, all right, good to go, and shuts the door. And there I am. And let me tell you, if you want to get your butt handed to you so quickly, stand in front of a group of high school students for like five minutes. The same fears you had in high school are still there, and they come up radically fast. Like I was like, am I dressed okay? Is everything cool? But all of a sudden, I, I look at the whiteboard. I look at the class. I ask them to sit. And I pull up a marker, and I start writing Chapel 2016. And then I went around the class and I said, hey, what do you want this class to be? Everyone give me something that you'd like this class to be. And then we, we wrote on the board the whole class and the whole curriculum for the team. And I led that class for two years in the same way. And what I found out in that moment was that I had stepped into something that I actually was designed to do. There was something in me that didn't need like, to, to, uh, to, to plan something out or to do that, I naturally stayed, stepped into a teaching role and said, ooh, this is something I like to do. This is something that lights me up. This is something that fires me up. And this is actually something that I love, 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 love to do. And so in that moment, my voice outpassed the job description, right? When you find something that you're so deeply aligned with that your voice surpasses what your job description is, you've found the right place. That your voice matters when you find like, oh, I'm actually, I'm meant to be right here. I'm meant to be right here. And it's not that it's my identity. It's just that in this job, in this like little space, I'm actually doing what I was supposed to be doing. I feel useful. That's the best thing in a job is when you leave feeling like, ah, oh, I was useful today. Right? That was a good episode. I was useful in this situation. But the deeper problem is that when we don't feel useful, things begin to get all messed up. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that if we don't feel useful, we're, we're making our identity what that role is. Jesus is known as Jesus Christ, not Jesus Carpenter, right? We, we are not what we do. We're just bringing ourselves into that. Let's take a profession that does not exist anymore. Um, this is called, if it loads up, um, this gentleman right here, I don't know if you can see, is holding a hammer uh, that he's about to strike that door with. Now, this man was called a knocker-upper. Quick tip, do not Google knocker-upper. <laughs> I had to find that picture, and boy, oh boy. Anyway, um, knocker-upper, uh, and their job was a human alarm system. So in London, uh, like hundreds of years ago, before an alarm clock was around, they would come around the streets, and some of them had hammers like this, some of them had these huge long sticks, and they would tap on the windows in the, in the streets of London to tell people, hey, it's time to get up, it's time to go to work. Right Now, quickly, with the invention of an alarm clock or a clock or anything that can beep at you louder than some strange man with a hammer coming to your door, they're going to get replaced rather quickly, right? So what if this, let's just call him an alarmist, I can't say knock her up or again, uh, an alarmist, what if this alarmist, after the invention of the alarm clock, kept going to the doors and knocking on the doors and when the person said, hey, we don't need your services anymore, I have this little device that can wake me up just fine. Thank you for what you've been doing, but you're no longer needed. What if they responded, no, 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 no. This is what I do. This is what I was meant for. This is what I was born to do. I think the two most depressing statements in the whole world is, this is what I'm born to do, and this is the greatest day of my life. I heard someone yell that on a roller coaster, and it just hit me like, if this is the top, I don't know, sir. Anyway, <laughs> the greatest day of your life, and, the, and this is what I was born to do. The, the fact is, there is no job, guys, there is no job that you were specifically born to do. You were born to be you. 
You were born to work on this, and that's your heart. And you were born to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, who takes that heart and transforms it. That is your job. That's your role. Not, not your, just your job. But so often we do that, right? Like if something, it's a dark night, if the soul comes up, and all of a sudden things at work are not going well, or you're questioning why you're even there, or maybe it's a bad relationship that's there, and you go, no, this is my purpose. This is what I'm meant to do. You put way too much of yourself into your job or your career, but the fact of the matter is, no, 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 no. You're not meant for only this. Career is not an identity. Trust me, I know. I have a degree in rock guitar. That's a true statement. So it's not your identity. What you do is not, is not what defines you. There's a great Japanese uh, phrase for what actually does define you. It's, it's the same idea as like voice or roots that we've been talking about. It's called ikigai. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. But ikigai is basically like it can be translated into life's meaning or even better yet, some loosely translate it into just like, like what gets you up in the morning? Ikigai, what gets you up in the morning? It's that thing you can't shut up about. It's that fire that's in your bones that you're like, every time I go into a job, this thing keeps coming up or I keep getting used in this way, or people keep pu putting me in this role because this, is, this just keeps coming up no matter what occupation I'm in. That's your key guy. That's your voice. Those are your roots, right? Your actual roots. And I think a lot of time we spend time nourishing not the roots, but the flowers on top, right? But flowers don't last forever. A bloom is not your roots. And we define ourselves so much by that bloom, by that success, by that one thing. Like, oh, well, I did really well in this this one time, so this is obviously where I'm supposed to be. I just, I have to get this flower to bloom again. It's fine. It's going to be okay. And yet, no, 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 that flower is out, and it's time to tend to your roots so that you can get ready for what blooms next. So that the next time something blooms, you understand, oh, wait, this isn't it. My roots are it. And I'm going to follow through in this. When that great tumultuous night of the soul hits, you realize I have been tending to these roots for long enough that this storm no longer bothers me, that this night no longer bothers me, that I have a deeper root. That's what God is calling you to. And I think there's an amazing, an amazing um, story uh, that, that, that tells that. Um, and so Nicodemus, but before I do that, I want to tell you the story about, uh, you, basically when you find that voice or when you find your roots, it's not something that you have to go looking for out there. And all too often we go on searches, we go on pilgrimages, we go on all of these things. I need to do this drastic thing in my life to find out who I'm really supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do with my life. But the answer is not out there. It is somewhere deeper inside you. No one has to tell a baby what to do, right? No one has to tell a baby how to be. A baby just is. A baby will cry when it needs food. A baby will like look at you with deep eyes and you go like, I love you, right? A baby understands its identity and I think the first 20 years of our life is all about distorting that identity. Saying, no, you should be this, or you should be that, or you should be this, when, no, there was actually a you there all along, and you kept placing yourself in other things. We just went to Disneyland, which I don't recommend in the summer. Uh, we went to Disneyland, and my mom was there, and whenever my mom gets together with uh, Chelsea, they, she loves to hear stories of when I was little, uh, and, and when I was a baby specifically, or like a toddler, and my mom was like, we were in this big crowd, and she's like, oh, I remember when we would walk through these crowds, like the airports with Josh, he had to be on a leash. And, and <laughs> Chelsea was like, he had to be on a what? And he was like, oh yeah, no, Josh was on a leash for the first four years of his life. And, and what, that, what that pointed out to me was, there's actually a lot of aspects of my character that still should probably be on a leash. Like, you don't change. You are who you are when you're little. 
You are who you are when you're a child, right? But, like, but we spend so much of our time distorting that reality. The whole point, the whole point of Christianity, the whole point of God in your life is that he wants to show you more of who you are. That you're a human being, not a human was or a human then, but a human being. You're happening right now, and I want to show you what that life means. Like, I want to show you something different. But as we get older, that becomes way more difficult because we've built our own career identity and our own everything. That first birth, that little baby that you were, that that identity that you were, that soul that you already were, starts to get distorted and messy. And Jesus has a perfect solution for this. And it's something that's kind of been hijacked a little bit. It's a phrase we hear a lot in Christianity. But Jesus just offers this up. He says, why not just be born again? Why not be born anew? Why not reclaim this identity and just say, hey, I I choose to be born again, born anew. And this happens so beautifully. It's it's, uh, in the story of Nicodemus. Basically, Nicodemus um, is a very powerful and influential man. Um, we, we have stories of him and a historian named Josephus. Uh, he's a real figure. And so we don't know if this exchange actually went down between Jesus and Nicodemus. But what we do know is that the writer of John really wanted us to know that this is how Jesus dealt with this very powerful man, this leader of the Jewish people, as he's described as. So let's read how he does this. Um, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. What they're talking about there with the Jewish ruling council is a thing called a Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court. So this guy's sitting on what would be like the Supreme Court of the land at the time. This is a big deal. Um, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing uh, if God were not with him. So he's, he's kind of buttering Jesus' bread a little bit, and he's saying, hey, we know that you're from God. But what we're, what we're really seeing here is Nicodemus going like, hey, he's setting this up like, I know you're from God, but I have questions about God. Because you're not lining up with what my version of God looks like. So how are you from God? So Nicodemus very conveniently comes to him at night. Why would you come to someone at night? Maybe because you did not want to be seen. Right? And that's the low-hanging fruit. But the cooler part behind that is in the Jewish faith and in the Jewish tradition, night is not just where the day ends, but night is actually where the day begins. So this is a beautiful picture of someone coming with questions that they know this person has the answer to, and they're coming for a new beginning. They're coming to explore and see, maybe can I take this step in this direction and actually believe in the wider story of God? Can I believe that God keeps growing and keeps moving and keeps going? So he comes to him, and Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this leads to all sorts of questions, because if you're hearing that statement for the first time, you're going to do the natural response is like, that sounds impossible and ridiculous. And Nicodemus says the same thing. He says, how can someone go back into their mother's womb? He's taking it very literally, right? Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You have to be born again. And then what's even more incredible about this story, this story happens in John 3, and then a little bit down the way, as Jesus is describing what salvation looks like and what he looks like, he then says the most famous Bible verse of all time, And a lot of times we think that this Bible verse is thrown out to a vast majority, but for this moment, Jesus is speaking this into a life of someone who's coming in the night, wondering if they should stay or go or change, and he speaks this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that those who believed in him could have an eternal life. That's what that verse's context is for. And then it moves on 
For he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And he's speaking that into this powerful, supreme judge's face who's probably a lot older than him. He's saying, no, 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 like, I know that you're this Supreme Court judge. I know that you're this high person. I know that you have a lot of wealth and a lot of status. But what really defines you, who you really are, is a person that God loves so much that he sent me to find you. Your true vocation, your true job description, if you are a follower of Christ, is a Christ follower, a Christian. You are called to love what God loves and how God loves. That's our job description. And when we're doing that and we're following that, we're going to find that a lot of those other pieces are going to come in the way. There's this amazing Frederick Buechner quote was there, and, um, and here's how he defi- defines vocation. He says, vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's great need. Where your deep gladness meets the world's great need. May we strive for that. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful um, for our time this morning to talk through what it means to be in the careers we are and to not be identified by that. Um, God, I pray that you would make us people when that dark night of the soul does come that we recognize that, Lord, maybe that's there uh, to remind us of our roots. Maybe that's there to remind us of you uh, and how you take care of us. Amen. So guys, we're going to take communion this morning as we always do. So I always want to.